All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, would you join me as we continue to worship, as we pray again? Lord God, would you silence the voices within us so that as your word is preached, we may hear yours and in faith respond. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Christ's name we pray. Amen. So early last spring, the uh, residents of Richfield Park, where I reside, were informed by the Board of Ed that uh, there was a situation, um, that there was mismanagement of the finances in the previous years, and there were about $2.5 million that were missing unaccounted for. And this mismanagement... Uh, resulted in a lot of painful consequences of layoffs, totaling about 70 people from teachers' aides to custodians and lunch aides, um, secretaries uh, working full-time to part-time, classes being eliminated, at least one class, and a psychologist uh, position being eliminated. I went to a couple of those Board of Ed meetings, and it was quite heated to say the least. Um, lots of anger, lots of questions, a lot of confusion. Yet amidst of that, there was also a lot of grace and understanding, believe it or not. The acting superintendent was ultimately held accountable, was let go, and after a year, our town is still dealing with the aftermath of financial malfeasance of Board of Ed from previous years that had escalated into what it was last year. I want to ask you, if you were sitting in one of those meetings, what you would have asked for or demanded, would you, ask, would you be the one asking for justice and accountability or for mercy and understanding? The passage that was read to us today comes right after Jesus taught the disciples about confronting believers when they sin against you. What do you do? Jesus taught about church discipline. And now in response to Peter's question, how many times do I need to forgive a brother in Christ who sins against me? And it's a natural question because Jesus just taught them about going out of your way, not passively just forgiving someone, but seeking a brother out, seeking a sister out in faith as privately as possible first. And if they don't respond, then go with another brother or sister, one or two. And if they don't respond, bring it to a church for the goal of restoration and reconciliation. So how many times do you keep on doing this? Peter wanted to know. He wanted to know whether, you know, it's like, what's the line? What, when, when can I stop? I think a lot of us, we want to know, right? We want to know also. How many times will God expect you or me to forgive a fellow brother or sister in Christ here? Peter thought he was being generous seven times. Back in those days, rabbi taught up to three times, so he doubled it and add one more. That sounds pretty generous. But Jesus 
response is quite mind-blowing. I mean, this is a passage that we are probably familiar with. Jesus responds, depending on your translation, either 70, 70, 77 times or 70 times 7. The point isn't whether the difference between 77 versus 490. The point of this Hebrew-Jewish way of communicating is that there is no limit to this. You keep on forgiving. It's not about how many fingers you can use to count and say, after that, you're done, you're released, you're relieved. And Jesus goes on to teach a parable. Now, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning often teaching theology or ethics. It teaches us what God is like and what our responsibility is in response. It's not a lecture with a couple of points. It's a story that is meant to challenge our thinking and compel us to think and live differently. Here's a kingdom parable. There's a king, and he wants to settle accounts. Familiar? A lot of the parables, something's going to happen at the end. And it's referring to a Gentile king, probably like a Greek ruler of Egypt before the Romans came in power. And this king wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And it's not a typical slave that we may think of, but this is probably an upper-level slave or servant, probably a, a, like a satrap of a province who's serving as a vassal to the king. And his main job is to collect taxes from all the area, especially from peasant farmers, and will collect them and deliver them to the king. And just like even today, people have a hard time paying taxes, especially back in those days. If you're an um, agricultural worker or a peasant farmer, they really struggle to pay taxes. And here, this, this servant owed 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents, it's a lot. Back in those days, um, a province that included um, Edomia, Judea, and Samaria paid a total um, revenue of 600 talents. And according to Josephus, who is a Jewish historian back in uh, Jesus' time, an annual tribute of Galilee and Perea combined was about 200 talents. Um, these are huge regions that are paying a couple of hundreds of talents. But here we have this servant who owed 10,000 talents. During one season in church history, one silver talent uh, was worth about 6,000 um, denarii or drachmas, 6,000 days of wages. So if you use that calculation, 10,000 talents is worth 60 million days of labor. It's a lot of money. Now, if that is harder to imagine, consider a different way. So if there is an army of like 8,600 soldiers, and each soldier is carrying about 50 pounds of coins, then if they line up, you have about five miles of soldiers carrying 60 pounds of coins, valuing 10,000 talents. That's how much money this one servant, this satrap who's in charge of collecting taxes, owed to their king. It's a lot of money. It was an inconceivable amount that any one person could possibly owe in debt. And this king, when he was keeping account, seeing what's going to happen, well, this guy owes the money. So like a lot of Greco-Roman 
kings did, Jewish kings did not do this. They would sell the servant, put them in prison, along with the family members, wife and children, whatever they possessed, they'll throw them in jail. And actually that person in jail, they can't do anything else. They can't pay back that. The only way they can pay back that is if family or friends come and give them money to relieve them, kind of bail, you know, the bond. But there's no way that anyone could pay this back. An average slave, if they're sold in this situation, they would be valued at anywhere from 500 to 2,000 days of wages. So even if the whole family is sold, there's not even one thousandth of the value that they owe will be able to be returned. This servant, desperate, pleads his case, asks for patience, and dare to say, I will pay back. Now, there's just no way that he can pay back, but he says he will pay back. Early this spring, I, I was notified, along with other residents of my town, that they discovered $2 million from um, the accounting. Now, there are already 70 people who were laid off last year because of this financial malfeasance. And they tell us that they discovered $2 million that they didn't know they had. And according to them, this was calculated by overestimating how much they would need to pay in terms of employee salaries, benefits, utilities, social security payments. So now, with this discovery of $2 million, there's still a difference of $5 million, right? And five, uh, half a million, that's still not accounted for. Some 17 positions are going to be recommended to be reinstituted. Five, $2 million is a little less than 5% of the town's Board of Ed budget. It's a lot, but it's small compared to the overall proportion. Yet in today's passage, we have someone who owes more than anyone in that time can possibly possess. 10,000 talents is probably referring to all the coins that are probably available in that kingdom. And he owes that much. He cannot possibly pay back. That's probably more than what a king would collect annually from all the taxations that he collects. Yet this is what the servant owes. Question I think that I naturally find myself asking is like, do I really think I owe that much to God? Is my sin that great that Jesus equates it with 10,000 talents all the currency that's out there. He surely thinks so. The whole point of this parable is to show that God's generous forgiveness of our sin demands our generous return of forgiveness to others. We tend to think, or at least I tend to think that when I sin, it's an ordinary sin. But if someone that kind of really rubs off the wrong way, sins against me, I think of that as an extreme sin. But it's almost like comparing the distance between here, North Haladin, North Haladin, however you pronounce it, to Paramus, what is that, like 10, 15 miles? From the point of view of the sun, 
what is the distance between North Heldon to Paramus versus the distance from the perspective of the sun and everything around it? It's nothing. Yet that's how Jesus is setting, juxtaposing between what God has done for us and what he expects of us to other believers who sin against us. And don't get me wrong, forgiveness here isn't about passive, oh, I forgive him, I forgive her. No, it's going out, doing what is needed to seek restoration and reconciliation. Confrontation that is based on love, that acknowledges sin for what it is, and that expects penitence, confession. The heart of the matter is that the king knew that he won't get the money back, so out of pity, he releases him and his family, forgives his debt. There's no limit to how many times we are called to forgive. As I was preparing this message, my uh, number two was hovering around, and he was reading my script, and he was like, oh, like 77 times? Versus 490 times, and then I asked, so he was reading, and so I asked him, so how many times do you think your brother forgave you? And I, I kind of threw out, like, a leading question, a couple of hundred? Like, what? He said, yeah, maybe 200. <laughs> um, probably more. But it was a humble reminder for me that we need to keep on forgiving when there is genuine repentance. So this forgiven servant, when he is released, he finds another fellow servant. Remember, this is in the context of Jesus talking to believers within the church, right? And this fellow servant happened to probably another satrap or provincial tax collector. He just owed him 100 denarii, 100 days of wages. He just released from 10,000 talents, more money than he could ever literally imagine. And here, 100 talents that a person could literally pay back is a large sum of money, 100 days of labor. However, this is something that a fellow servant could pay back. He pleads just the way he pleaded to the king, asking for patience that he will pay back. Yet, this ingrate of a servant throws him in jail, showing no grace forgetting everything that just kind of happened. How many times should we forgive our brother? There is no limit. And Jesus ends the parable, as Hannah read, with this statement, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Because you know what? Other servants saw this. They were really disturbed, rightly. And they brought it to the king's attention. And when king saw this, he threw him in jail until he could pay back, which would be for eternity. Because there's no way that in his lifetime or the lifetime of thousand generations of his family descendants that they could pay back 10,000 talents worth of debt. We have been forgiven much, 
And we cannot fail to forgive those who repent before us. If you read this, part of you, you might wonder, it's like, is Jesus kind of preaching like work salvation? I mean, like, if you forgive others, you'll be forgiven? What is he saying? Or is he suggesting that grace will only continue as a means of works? You have to forgive if you want to not be thrown in jail and be thrown in hell, basically, as a metaphor there. Or maybe we're saved by grace, but God is God going to cancel his forgiveness if we don't show grace and forgiveness? Remember, Jesus is not giving the whole gospel message with a parable. Parables individually are not meant to capture the entirety of the gospel. Parables are meant to show a point. And you need to read it along with the whole um, testimony of Scripture. Here, the point Jesus is making is this unbreakable connection between God's extravagant generosity and forgiving and his expectation of us showing generosity in forgiving others. We are justified by faith apart from works. However, being justified is not the only thing that happens in salvation. Around the same time when my town was informing us this last year about what was happening with the Board of Ed, I don't know what happened, but um, <clears throat> God began kind of poking my heart and compelled me to reach out to someone that I hadn't communicated literally in 30 years. When I first preached last year, I shared a little bit about you know, my experience getting beaten up. And one of the violence I experienced was with the first friend I made in the United States. This is, you know, after I came from Great Britain and acclimating to New Jersey and Parsippany. And the first friend I made, you know, we ended up fighting over Nintendo and he threw me on my couch and he was literally twice my size because I weighed 93 pounds when I was in ninth grade. And this is seventh grade. So, and he, he pounded my head until his hand hurt and I started crying and he started crying and he just ran out of the apartment. I waited many days, many months, and many years for reconciliation and restoration of that friendship. But I don't know what it was. Last April-ish, God just kind of like spoke and I felt compelled. I wasn't sure exactly what I was expecting. But I started looking for him on Facebook. And I found him. So I thought. I mean, he kind of looked. They're a bunch of same names. But he kind of looked alike. I wasn't a friend. So I couldn't see a lot of the details on the profile. But I sent him a message. And to be honest, I'm not exactly sure whether I expected him to say I'm sorry. I wasn't sure whether he would even want to communicate with me. But a couple of days later, he messaged me back. And we began just texting back and forth in the next 35 minutes, one Friday afternoon. And he began telling me what was going on in his life. And he told me that he became 
a Messianic Jew. And I was just so moved. I'm like, oh my goodness, praise the Lord. Yet at the same time, I'm like, oh my goodness, we still haven't talked about what happened 30 years ago. And I'm just amazed by God's mercy and the way he brought this friend back. Yet still deathly afraid to mention what happened 30 years ago. I knew I was going to preach this sermon today, and I, I, I felt the poke of God. It's like, you're going to preach about forgiveness in the context of not passively, oh, I forgive him, without really addressing the issue. You, you cannot just leave this alone. So I messaged him this morning. <laughs> so this is a year later after all this. I messaged him this morning, like 7 o'clock. I didn't think he was going to respond. Part of me didn't, I wasn't ready. And I, I brought up, hey, do you remember what happened 30 years ago in my apartment when we were playing Nintendo and you threw, threw me on my couch and you pounded my head, you broke fingers, we both cried, and how we haven't talked since. Well, till last year where we kind of, and I told him, I forgive you. And I am glad that we are brothers in Christ. And I'm driving to North Halladin, and he texts me back. And when I park, I see the message. And he tells me, first of all, that he didn't actually break his fingers. He told me he broke his knuckles. And he told me that he was in pain for weeks. And the hand that he broke has restored itself with such hardness compared to the other fist, that is like an iron. And if he were to ever punch anyone else, it would be far more painful for that recipient. And uh, he was just telling me. And I wasn't sure what he would say, but he apologized for what he had done. Um, I don't know... And that took me 30 years, <laughs> actually longer than 30 years, but I don't know what it is that you are harboring, but the more I draw closer to God, the more I am reminded that God is indeed far more generous than I could ever have hoped for, because maybe we're like Peter, we are, we're not maybe like Peter, we want to know the least we can do. We, have, we might have grown up in church, but the way we think sometimes is more uh, Buddhistic than Christian in a sense that Buddhism, there's a golden rule that's reversed. Do unto, in Christianity, we say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's a positive command to love. Broad responsibility. In Buddhism, there's a negative command. Don't do unto others as you have them not do unto you. Just don't harm it's a smaller responsibility. But the closer we draw near to Christ, we realize we just, sin isn't just what the bad things we do. At the heart of it, sin, rebellion against God is not loving God with all that we have and not loving the neighbors, our Christian neighbors, especially the way God calls us to love. 
And when you draw closer to this holy, generous God, you come to realize, oh my goodness, I thought my sin was like 100 denarii. But as you draw closer to this holy God, you come to realize our sin is like that 10,000 talents. And it's not false humility who an apostle Paul, as he matures in his faith and his journey, he is able to confess that he is indeed worst of all sinners. It's not because he's sinning more, but it's because he's growing in realization of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of his heart. Are we generous in the way we live out the life that God has called us to live? We have a generous God who so loved that he gave his only begotten son. I'm really challenged by this chapter because it calls us, it reminds us that God's going to hold us accountable. And it challenges us because other brothers and sisters are looking when other brothers and sisters in this church looks at us, do they see us as generous people marked by this radical generosity of God? Or are we, am I, miserly or calculating, not extravagant? Are we generous with the time that God has given us? Or am I just using the time that God has given me, given us, for just me and my family? How are we being generous with the time God has allotted us to build his local church? If we truly believe that local church is indeed hope for the world, and if we truly believe, as Jesus is charging his disciples about what to do about building up local churches, how am I stewarding the time that God has allotted us? How am I using the talents that God has given me, given us? Now, talent here is not, you know, in, in this context, talking about abilities, but God has given us many different gifts. How are we stewarding the gifts and talents and abilities that God has given to encourage one another with this kind of radical generosity? Because God, that we know, has been radically generous toward us in forgiving us. And finally, how are we being generous with the treasures? With the money God has given us to manage, resources, homes, whatever we have that God has given us, how are we stewarding them generously for the edification of his people? Do we give joyfully? Do we give generously and sacrificially? We have a God, a generous God, who so loved that he gave. He didn't hold back what was most valuable, but instead he gave his only begotten son. And this God, he expects, yes, we are saved by grace alone, but this justifying grace by the work of the Son, Jesus Christ, does not leave us the same. It leaves us with the fragrance of the generous God that we say we know, 
that we follow. We have a master who came not to lord over, but who came to serve. And we're called to be servants who embody that generous heart who showed us with his life, death, and resurrection. Brothers and sisters, let us meditate deeply and let us respond humbly to the radical generosity of our Heavenly Father who loved us to death and His Son. Let's pray.